Today on Peace Talks Radio, we touch on what seems like an ongoing conflict for humankind, how to live in harmony with nature. And it's only hyper-individualism and uh, this idea that we can isolate ourselves and quarantine ourselves from the natural world that gets us into trouble, that somehow things outside can go very wrong in the natural world, but we can hide out, and we can't hide out anymore. What do environmental disasters like the 2010 Gulf oil spill have to teach us about our relationship with the Earth? Today we speak with a social ecology professor, a Native American environmental policy activist, and a man who, in response to an oil spill in 1971, quit riding in motorized vehicles for 22 years. Here I am walking around in this beautiful environment, and my, my friends and my neighbors often felt that what I was doing was something to make them look bad. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio. Stay tuned. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. When the British Petroleum Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded in April of 2010 and set off the largest accidental marine oil spill in history, virtually everyone viewing the disruption to wildlife and the lives of the people in that region was devastated. We felt like it probably set off an inner conflict in many about humans' relationship with nature. This was true about some but not all of a small sampling that reporter Sarah Gustavus talked with outside of an Albuquerque post office. My name is James Green. I was feeling uh, sad for for our uh, economy, just the uh, effect that it, it would have, it's going to have on us. The uh, animals, you know, in the, in the waters and stuff that, that the, that's affected there. Do you think it's changed your uh, your relationship with nature yourself, how you're thinking about nature right now? No, not really. Everything's pretty much the same. My name is Kathy Purdy. I don't care about it. It doesn't concern me. I don't really like seafood, so it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> Does it seem far away to you? Oh, yeah. It seems far away to me. I don't have no family out there anyway, so. My name is Ruben Sanchez. I was feeling worse also because of the, the, the spill, the magnitude of the damage done to those people on the Gulf. But it was a, a, a disaster. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I could do now. <laughs> That's beyond my control. I think that, uh, that we must protect nature, and uh, I think that there should be more regulation on that kind of drilling in the ocean to protect nature protect the people, essentially. We'll hear a few more voices from Sarah Gustavus's interviews later in the program. For today's show, we also sought out some voices of people who've already placed their relationship with nature at the center of their lives to see how their experiences and thinking might help us all grapple with this inner conflict. A lot of the headlines during the three months when the oil gushed into the Gulf framed the event as an attack or war on the earth. How can we think and act to make peace with nature? Today we speak with a social ecology professor, also a Native American environmental policy activist. But first we talk with John Francis, whose response to an oil spill in 1971 was to quit riding in motorized vehicles altogether for 22 years and walk all across the country, and during 17 of those years not to speak a single word. In all that time, he completed the bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. degrees in land management. He's the author of Planet Walker, How to Change Your World One Step at a Time, 
and he talked with our Carol Boss. It was only about a half a million gallons from two tankers uh, that collided near the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we just rushed to the scene to, to see an oil spill. We've never seen one before. I've never seen one. And we didn't see it because of the fog, but what we did experience was the smell. Finally, when we started driving back uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge and, and back home, we uh, went by Bolinas and we could see the people who were gathered along the beach uh, working frantically to uh, save birds and, and to clean up the oil from the beach. It was uh, a very horrific scene, uh, and I wanted to do something, and I just didn't think that going out and, and picking up a, a dying bird was, was going to do it for me. I wanted to do something more, and I said to my girlfriend, I said, how about us getting out of our, our cars and just walking? And she kind of laughed at me. You're talking about not just walking um, uh, down the beach. You were talking about a, a larger uh, decision. Absolutely. I mean, I was talking about getting rid of our involvement with, the motor, with motor transport altogether, meaning we walk to the store, we'd walk to the movies. Wherever we had to go, um, we would walk. And uh, that didn't sit well with a lot of people, and it uh, uh, didn't sit well with my girlfriend. Later, a friend of mine uh, was killed in an accident, a boating accident, and he was about the same age as I was. He was about 26 years old. He was married. He had a beautiful family. Um, so when, when Jerry, our friend, was, uh, had been lost in this boating accident on Tomales Bay, uh, we went for a walk. And so just in that moment, on, on the walk back from from San Rafael, we went to see a, a music group and to dance and celebrate his life. On the walk back, I decided that, hey, we only have right now, we only have this moment. And because we just have this moment and we're already walking, I'm just going to keep walking. And, and that's what, what happened. That presented you with an opportunity to, um, to change, didn't it? Well, it did. You know, and, and I think that these... Uh, events happen in our lives all the time. There are all certain kinds of events that happen that give us an opportunity to, to make a difference in, in our own lives. And eventually what happens is when we make a difference in our own lives, we are making difference in, in, in each other's lives. Well, it sounds like that you also um, had that moment of making a, a deep personal commitment. And that commitment, in a sense, was about walking, but it was larger than that, wasn't it? Because you decided to um, stop driving. In fact, to stop using all motorized vehicles. Is that right? Well, it, it did become larger than that, and, and you're right. The first thing was, you know, it was an oil spill, and I'm going to walk everywhere I, I go. But because I, I, and I wasn't an environmentalist. I mean, I heard about environment. I was you know, part of the generation where we're getting back to the land and, and growing our own food. But I, I hadn't really grasped the true meaning of, uh, you know, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And I really didn't get John Muir or, or Aldo Leopold, all the great conservationists. I didn't understand that. But what happened was because in my community people saw me walking, uh, and they started to argue with me about how one person really can't make a difference. And, and I didn't know if that was true or not. I just found myself arguing all the time. Here I am walking around in this beautiful...
beautiful environment, and all I do is argue with my, my friends and my neighbors who often felt that what I was doing was something to make them look bad. And so on my birthday, I took the extraordinary step of um, deciding not to speak for one day. And that was what really changed my life most dramatically. And what happened after that first day of not speaking? What did you notice? Well, the first thing that, that I noticed about not speaking was I did it for a gift to my community because I talk so much. But what my first teaching was to myself was that I hadn't been listening. And because I hadn't been listening, I had stopped learning. What I would do and is, is something that I'm not sure that your listeners have done or are doing, but it was something really big in my life. I would just listen long enough to believe that I understood or knew what the other person was going to say. And then I would stop listening to them. And I would start thinking about um, how I was going to say that they were wrong or that, yes, they were right, but I could say that better, or I was smarter than they were, and this is what I had come up with. And that one day I realized that I had not been listening and that um, I had stopped learning. And I stopped speaking for another day and another day until finally uh, I had decided that I was going to not speak for a year, and I would ask myself on my birthday if that was still appropriate because I was learning so much. And it allowed me to uh, put myself, the things that I believed, aside to listen to someone uh, more fully, to understand, at least understand, what their point was and where they were coming from. Uh, maybe I didn't agree with them, and, I, and eventually I wouldn't agree, but that they did have the right and, and to, to, to be heard, and I was going to listen to them. And when you continued walking, and we're not just talking about walking to the store or to the library, we're talking about you... You took very large walks uh, across the country. Would I be correct in in saying that, in a sense, all of this was part of uh, a recognition on your part of a personal responsibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you talk about that? Well, um, as I <laughs> was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge with my girlfriend in our four-wheel drive vehicle, I understood that part of what was washing up on the shore, I had some responsibility because here I am driving a, a motorized vehicle and we're using this oil and I wanted the oil quickly, I wanted it cheaply, I, I wanted lots of it. And because of that, the industry, I was creating a demand as we all do. The industry was responding to that demand. Now, Absolutely, oil companies have a greater preponderance of the responsibility, especially when they spill it. But in all fairness, I, I have to take some of the responsibility myself. John, coming to the decisions that you did, uh, making uh, deep commitments and recognizing a, a personal responsibility, did that bring you a sense of peace in any way? Not right away. <laughs> Because I think that when I made those decisions, I, I, I did make them with a kind of chip on my shoulder. And, and, and that's when I was arguing with, with uh, my neighbors and my friends and colleagues about 
what it was I was doing and how it was going to make a difference. When I stopped talking, it, that allowed me to step back from that and and to and to rediscover something, and that that was the the grounding of of what I was doing and, and who I was, and and that the walking actually went beyond a protest of oil spills, and the silence went beyond the protest of oil spills. But this was something even bigger than that that was going to allow me to rediscover who I was and who I had to be in in the world or the planet. Uh, and so it was even more important and, and larger than than that, but that came much later. Over the years of, of not speaking, and I, I didn't speak for 17 years, and uh, while I walked and while I was silent, um, at various times of my life, I guess I experienced tremendously uh, deep moments of peace. For the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, which was in 1990, you uh, arrived on the East Coast, and it was there, wasn't it, that you decided to speak. Why did you choose Earth Day? Mm, that's, you know, a very good question. Um, I had walked across the United States, um, studied oil spills all the way up to a Ph.D. level. Uh, environment was uh, my degree, and I taught, actually, in, at university without speaking. But when I got to the East Coast, I finally had something that, that I needed to say. Environment, to me, had changed. When I started out, it was just about pollution and soon became about loss of species and loss of habitat and and. All those things we traditionally think of environment. What I understood was, and it was in the literature, is that people are part of the environment. And if people were indeed part of the environment, then our first opportunity to treat the environment in a sustainable way, or even to understand what sustainability is, is in the relationship with ourselves and with each other. And so... To me, environment needed to have civil rights, human rights, economic equity, gender equality, and all the ways that, that humans relate to one another. If we related to each other with respect and love and dignity and not looking to, to I guess, exploit one another, to oppress each other, if we, if we really treated each other the way we wanted to see our physical environment Treated, then we would find that what would happen in our physical environment would be a mitigation of a lot of the problems and a lot of the issues that we are facing today. For example, and this is a very simple, very simple example, if I were a, um, a manufacturer and I lived on a river and I was making widgets, of course, and widgets were wonderful, everybody wanted them. And um, I was doing quite well. But in making widgets, there's a waste product which I was dumping into the river. In economic terms, that's called an externality because I don't have to pay for getting rid of that waste product. As it goes downstream, I learn, or my company learns, that it's actually causing health problems to the town downstream and that they actually have to pay to clean up the river 
in order to keep from having these health problems. Now, if I were thinking like, hey, you know, how we treat each other is how we treat the environment, right away I would say, oh, my God, let's stop. We have to stop and figure out how we're going to take care of this. If I weren't, I might say, well, listen, I want us to bury that memo, and we're not going to do nothing until people absolutely make us do something. And, and in that way, you can see how our relationship, our personal relationship with ourselves and with each other and understanding our connectedness uh, would actually make a difference in the environment. Do you have any suggestions for listeners for simple yet profound acts that one can do that can be impactful? Well, depending on, on, on where you are, um, walking is a very simple act that can have um, tremendous ramifications. Riding a bicycle, you know, very simple but tremendous uh, ramifications because as you do that, um, things are going to happen. Like first, when I started walking long distances um, to other communities, I realized I couldn't walk across certain bridges. Uh, once we get to that place where we realize that there are obstacles that are keeping us from doing what it is that we're trying to do, then we get together and we try to, to overcome those obstacles. And it may be something that we do in a, in a voting booth or in uh, legislatures, but where, where these things happen, people come together and, and try to overcome the obstacles. But it always starts out with, you know, just one person, just a few people trying to do something and saying, hey, you know, I, we can't do that, you know, <laughs> and, and then seeing why we can't do that and then trying to work through the uh, puzzle, uh, which is kind of like life, just the problem when we have problems and we're going to have them, uh, to, to get to do the things that we know we need to do. I know that it's easy for people to turn the TV off or to put a newspaper aside and create some distance between themselves and a tragedy such as the Gulf oil spill. How does a person know when it's their moment to make a decision? Well, when the tears are running down your face, when you've heard something on the news, or when you have read it in the paper, um, you know that there's an opportunity for you to make a change, to do something. Because right then, right then, you have passion to do it. Maybe the tears will go away. They will go away. But at that moment, you know that there's something that's, that's touching you on an emotional level, and you can do something. In 1969, there was a blowout in uh, Santa Barbara. It was an oil spill of about 3 million gallons of oil. It galvanized the country. The first Earth Day came out of that the following year, 1970, was the first Earth Day. And it, it kind of put us into the environmental movement. That's the beginning of the environmental movement. What I'm hoping is that this oil spill, which happened on Earth Day, uh, the, well, it actually happened on the 20th, and Earth Day is the 22nd, but um, that this will do the same thing, that this will kind of propel us into... Uh, another era of thinking about the environment and, and really doing something about it. Uh, you don't need to be a, a uh, scientist 
in order to understand how this works. You should be able to see this in your in your own lives and and feel it. And and so if 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 you needed to have an advanced degree in uh, physics or environmental studies or to understand this, then I I think it you know it wouldn't work. <laughs> this is this is just for us. This is just for people to understand to to make this happen. John Francis, who gave up motor transport from 1972 to 1994 and remained silent during most of those years in response to a West Coast oil spill. In 1991, he was named a United Nations Environmental Program Goodwill Ambassador, and he's written the book Planet Walker, How to Change Your World One Step at a Time. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're asking for thoughts on humans and the environment in the wake of 2010's Gulf oil disaster, and in a moment, the Native American take on it all, Please stay tuned. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight peacemakers throughout history and today, and we explore nonviolent conflict resolution strategies that we can all apply to daily life. Today, we're touching on what seems like an ongoing conflict for humankind, how to live in harmony with nature. What do environmental disasters like the 2010 Gulf oil spill have to teach us about that relationship with the earth? Here are a few more comments from patrons at an Albuquerque post office gathered by reporter Sarah Gustavus. My name is Vivian Denard. BP acted like they didn't do anything, and they didn't do anything until Obama pushed them. So it's like, it's like things as usual. The majority of them is money first, and then anything else is second, including the environment. So maybe I'm cynical, but I don't think the majority of the people care about nature because profit trumps the environment, so I really don't think they really give a damn. My name is William Surdy. I mean, these oil companies employ the mar- the, supposedly the smartest engineers in the world and something like that happens, so how do you justify that? Maybe change my feelings about the oil companies, if anything. You know, they're responsible for it. I mean, not the animals or nature. Uh, they have nothing to do. They're victims of it, just like we are. I'll never buy stock in an oil company. They have too much power. That's what it is. It's greed. It's all about money in and greed is the basis of this society, or maybe this world, and is the price we pay for it. My name's Clayton Williams. Uh, it didn't really bother me. I, I live right off the Gulf Coast, and we have them all the time. So I've dealt with them before, oil spills before. I've worked offshore for 20 years. So I know the, the government does a good job at cleaning up. So I'm Paul Ingalls. And next we hear from Kathy Wanpobi Sanchez, a potter producing the highly sought-after blackware from San Ildefonso Pueblo in New Mexico. 
She's carrying on the tradition of her ancestors. She's also a community activist working on nuclear, water, domestic, and sexual violence issues as a member of Tewa Women United. Carol Boss asked her for the Native American perspective on resource extraction, drilling, mining, and the like. The perspective is that um, it should not happen. Um, it is drilling and in water or on land is about an extraction, taking part in a process of the di- of the death and dying, and we're not allowing the materials to go through their process of the whole years and that it takes to be in Mother Earth and in their grave and in being able to be of use again within a million years. And we're just scratching the surface and taking out bodies, and that's not right. Now, you said taking out bodies. What do you mean by that? Well, the fossil fuel of oil is the bodies of dinosaurs. They're ancient uh, animals that have been buried in the ground, and they need to go through their death process. They need to be reclaimed and recharged and cleansed and then be able to come to the surface again in the natural years that it takes for that to happen. Extraction is violence if you're reaching into Mother Earth without the permission, without the sacredness that it takes to allow our natural world to be not harmed by our actions. Can you describe how you received the news of the Gulf oil disaster and how you felt in the days that followed the news that just continued to get worse? Well, believe it or not, I was in Colombia a couple of days before then, and I was on the taxi with a guy who works on a rig like that off the coast. I felt anger. I felt frustration in a company um, being doing the business that they were that close and in Mother Earth. I still feel that way about um, drilling and access fishing and anything that is in access and not in its natural place. And if it's not a natural process and uh, you feel, um, that overwhelmingness of what's going to happen to people, what's going to happen to the fish, what's going to happen to the spirits of the water. You feel that sickeningness but you feel that anger first. And that's part of the grief process. That's part of the um, seeing that pain. I think pain, grief and loss is in everybody's purview to to um, react. How are you going to react? And in dealing with um, grief and death and loss, it anger is the first thing that pops up. Anger and um, pointing some pointing it at somebody else. You you. But then in the long run, what ends up is that you then start into thinking and praying and asking and being in that flow of what can I do? How do I make my presence be of service to the people that I can't just travel over there and give them all my money or give them all my food or give them? I, so people stop there and they get numbed down and they say, well, I can't really do anything worthy of, of an action. So then they hold back. And so I think that's where the downfall is, that that's what they would want us to do. But in reaching out, in doing what you can do within your means, within your ability, in prayer, in asking, in and children do that a lot. I've heard a lot of children that said, oh, man, those my brother, my brothers and sisters, my the, their children are going to die. They're going to get sick. So what can I do, mommy? What can I do? And then they say, oh, I'm going to organize and I'm going to go collect pennies. 
or they say, I'm going to go write a letter. You know, they can do it. They're, they're not thinking about what they can't do. They just do it. And so as humans, as elders, and as people that have been here, we need to do what we can do from the heart, from the um, asking, from that guidance, and act on it. Because when you do it, and when you speak that truth from the heart, when you act that truth from the heart, nothing can stop you. It's just every 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 inch every everything counts everything adds up and it's a whole universal multiversal way of being did your organization tewa women united respond um specifically to the gulf oil disaster i think we responded by doing a lot more water ceremonies because water spirits are connected multiversally and and we had a group that following week here from, um, I think, North Carolina. And they were also like in a dilemma saying, well, what do we do? I, I, we don't know what we're, we're not related. We don't want, we don't have to be. And I said, you're water people. You carry that water in you. Just go to the nearest water. Give love and thanks to the spring, to the lakes, to the water, to the water you drink before you wash your face. Give love and thanks. And when you do that, that, energy of that love that water feels they're going to feel that down there as well it's going to be transferred to another level or another means and so you're working at different multi-levels of existence and that's how the first immediate thing you do the next immediate thing you do is as an is locally or grassroots as families as people what do you uh, how do you do it do you do a collection do you do clothes I think we did more in ceremony and prayer. Um, we don't have the means to go down there. And as a collective, we uh, send through the emails to blogs, people that are connected that we know. We, we do an email blast to let people know what's happening to the indigenous, what's happening to the water, what's happening uh, on a policy level. There's many different avenues of that impact that if you move that energy towards those individual pathways that something good is going to come about something will change and that something is because you put that energy towards that process we can either be about taking part in the culture of violence or we can be about being within the culture of peace and reconciling our life according to the rhythms and patterns of the natural world Kathy Sanchez how do native americans who are conscious of um, caring for the earth, act in their everyday life that connects them with this relationship with nature, such as shopping and, and using vehicles and, and building your homes? I think um, as um, conditioned humans into this culture of violence, and if we want to be about the culture of peace, we need to do it within our means. We need to think about what we are capable of doing, whether they're baby steps, big leaps of change, what we are able to do, we should do. And it starts with prayer. Everybody can say their good thoughts. Everybody can always be conscious of offering a thank you, a smile. I think the basics is so simple. You want to be happy. You want to be healthy. You want to be spiritually connected. How you do that is within your preview. And if it takes um, working at it, a conscious effort, you have to be about purposeful living. And then you define that for yourself. 
What is purposeful living? Yes, maybe we have to shop, but where do we shop? Yes, maybe we're shopping 90% of our time. Let's cut it down to 60%. Let's make our own things. Let's barter. Let's exchange. Let's give without having to expect money. And how do you cut down? How do you start how do you start being more in walking on Mother Earth, connecting to her and walking and saying thank you and meeting people as opposed to zipping in a car going fast? Because then time is an element that has been taken from us. Let's claim our time to be with each other back again. Is there a way to ask for permission and use Earth's resources uh, appropriately? Yes, there is. When we do our pottery, when we make our pottery, we have to get the clay. And so we offer our prayers and ask for permission to take. And we only take that which will sustain us. We don't bring a whole truckload and load up the whole back and then have it there and not go back again. It's that action of interactions, relational presence. That's what life is about. So when you're giving permission they allow you to take and have sustenance by that use of the clay or the use. But in, in, um, in reality, with what is um, sustainable, what is needed at that time, they under all the life givers understand that even the trees, you ask permission before you, you take the herbs before you um, take any of the fruit, and then you give back to life. You take what you need, but then you also feed the animals. You also feed the spirit. There's many levels of feeding each other with goodness. Kathy Sanchez, can you imagine a way BP or mining companies, uh, other resource extractors could actually add steps like prayers, permission asking, that would make resource extraction more acceptable to those who believe in Native American philosophy? Wow, it's going to take a whole bunch of giving up something that they ain't willing to do right now. But I think it is so darn possible if they think about what is their purpose in life. And not so much what is their purpose in life, but who is their purpose in life? Who are they serving? Who are they trying to give life to? And I think um, once you change your perception of uh, what is my purpose to who is my purpose, I think they'll see that what business they're in needs to be curtailed, cut back, and then to the point where you're going back to replace that which you've taken and then close that which you're taking. And a scab is going to form on that wound because once you're dug a hole in Mother Earth and you're taken, 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 you've created an imbalance in the cycle and you need to put that, allow that healing scab to be there and then let that um, heal itself. Mother Nature will heal itself. We only have a short time on this earth. How do we plan to be here? And I think that's everybody's has different pathways, have a different means, have different ways of seeing things. And we cannot um, force another's perceptions on someone else if they're not ready to hear that truth, if they're not ready for that moment of uh, transformation for themselves, whether they're individuals or whether they're individuals in companies. Because when we talk about BP and stuff, you're talking about corporations. You need to talk about the humans that are behind those actions. In your NGO presentation several years ago, you talked about 
committing to a culture valuing of peace. If you could talk more about what you mean by that from uh, a native view and how it can effectively counter the culture of violence. Mostly, I, I would say, within the culture of violence, it's a very male-dominated view. And speaking from a Native woman's perspective, I believe that the maternalistic way of thinking is that we are very nurturing, we are very caring, that we share and that we guide and protect and really work within how we are with each other. It's a relational concept that I think gets lost in the mix if it's about individualism, if it's about money. And so what is our value in how and what we're doing about in journeying on this earth? We really need to think about um, where our own values lie. Do I want to be about caring? Do I want to be about death? Do I want to take? Do I want to think that my ultimate goal, my value is money and what it can bring? Or is it really about taking care of each other, no matter what part of Mother Earth we're on, that we are relational beings, that we are brothers and sisters to each other, no matter what color, no matter what race, and whether we're humans or two-legged or four-legged or the winged relations or the trees or the rocks. What is our relational way that we want to have the mother perceive us? Kathy, do you have any suggestions for listeners how they can start thinking about this and really getting in touch with their values? Well, I think that if um, us as humans really know who we are, meaning that we didn't just surface here, we didn't just pop out from nowhere. I mean, we came from a mother. We came from a long lineage of ancestral beings, and we came in a process, in a, in a life cycle of Mother Earth. And if we can be humble enough to ask for that spiritual guidance, that ancestral wisdom to be with us now, in an instant we would be shown a lot of the the ways to be um, on this earth. And it's in the asking. We have to be humble enough to ask for guidance. We have to be um, ready to perceive whatever comes and be willing to be in that change ourselves. You can't change anybody but yourself. So you have to start with yourself. And if your gut or your feeling is telling you what's happening isn't right, if what your actions are showing you isn't in a correct way to be and you're having this talk in war with your conscience, then it's time that we uh, really acknowledge who we are and how people are connected to Mother Earth, how we are landed people. We are land-based people. We are community people. We are we're not put on this uh, Mother Earth as individuals. We're in a society, we're in a family, we're in a relationship. And even if a, a human were alone in an island, there's still the animals, there's still the trees that take care of us, that give us shelter, that give us food. We really need to think about relational presence. Kathy Sanchez from New Mexico's Tewa Women United. She's traveled around the world speaking on behalf of indigenous peoples, advocating for non-proliferation treaties, for global disarmament, and respectful use of natural resources. Next up, we'll visit with a college professor who's trying to help his students find that balance of respecting nature while making some of their other dreams come true. Stay with us when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, reminding you of our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this program again in full, as well as every other show in our series going back to 2003. Today, despite conservation efforts, are we still, on the whole, at war with Earth? The enormous 2010 oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico inspired the reflections of each of our guests today. In fact, just two days after the Deepwater Horizon rig blew in April of 2010, and long before the extent of the damage would be known, University of New Mexico environmental sociology professor Daniel Schwartz delivered a talk he called Perfect Storms and Paradigm Shifts to a standing-room-only crowd in the Student Union Building on the UNM campus. Carol Boss talked with him several months later when the well had finally been capped. Imperfect human beings only make imperfect technologies, and therefore these accidents are quite normal. They happen on a regular basis. I expect these kinds of accidents to happen because given enough wells, or 4,000 alone in the Gulf of Mexico, they're expected to blow. Let me ask you this. Your response, how did you feel? What were your reactions um, at the time? My reactions are always very sad because I understand the depth of this tragedy from a biological and an ecological point of view. The entire Gulf has been a uh, a natural disaster area and a natural national sacrifice area for a long time. The military has dumped shells and uh, military hardware after World War II. Uh, there's very little environmentalism uh, among the southern states. It's one of the most conservative areas of the country, and oil has a lot of control. And the tragedy is still not fully understood. Daniel, you're teaching juniors and seniors. Do you find those students who are nearing graduation str- struggling at this point between holding on to their to their dreams, the kind of dreams where the the world is wide open and and just waiting there for them, struggling between that and the reality of an even scarier, turbulent world? Do you think the environment plays into these conflicted emotions? That's a wonderful question, and um, absolutely. Uh, these are students who have their lives in front of them. Most of them are 20, 21, 22. They're graduating in a time that's very difficult. Um, I think part of my job is to tell the truth. I shouldn't say on the other hand, I, I believe it's important to talk about hope. And uh, these students need to, need to have hope. Uh, one of the things the students are concerned with are careers and jobs and the kinds of things many of us, most of us, were concerned with when we were that age. Um, on the other hand, I do talk about denial. What happens is we phase into denial with regards to the environment because at some levels it's very abstract uh, and other levels not necessarily so. And abstractions uh, at this point are not as uh, powerful for most students than uh, jobs, relationships, and the kinds of things that they want to make their their lives uh, uh, better. So uh, it is a dilemma, and I think the students find themselves in the dilemma. I try to get them to face the situations with regards to the crisis, not only in the environment, but ultimately it's the crisis of humanity and life on the planet as the entire life support system now 
is under attack. If you can get to the essence of what you would like to instill in these future guardians of our dear Mother Earth. One of the things I try to get across is the Earth is alive. It has a very powerful force for life. And no matter what happens to the Earth, life seems to continue on Earth. We've had some very terrible things happen that have nothing to do with humans. 65 million years ago, uh, at least half the species disappeared. But life continues. I want to get that across. Uh, Earth is still a very beautiful place. There's beauty wherever one looks. And I tell them to remind me of that sometimes when I talk about the seriousness of these issues. That we have to start thinking and always put Earth in our hearts and sort of making peace with nature because right now we're at war with nature. And I think that's another piece to it. Uh, this this uh, idea that nature's here simply to be used by humanity in what, by whatever means necessary. I think these kinds of things are extremely important. The life support system of this planet is diminishing. And we need to make a turn. We need to change the paradigm or paradigms by which we live on this planet with other creatures, with plants, animals, and each other. I present different paradigms. One of the new paradigms is called the precautionary principle, where we, we don't look at how much harm should be uh, allowable, but how little harm is possible. The city of San Francisco has taken up the precautionary principle. Um, a number of European countries have taken up the precautionary principle. You don't just go ahead and uh, put out some chemical into the environment or, or do some process and then wait to see what the effects are. It's simply too dangerous. And that's one of the problems of uh, drilling down uh, 30, 35,000 feet after you've drilled, after you've gone down a mile into the ocean uh, to look for oil. And also what that does is marginalize uh, alternative energy sources. Uh, so the new paradigms are important. I would hope, I was hoping that the President of the United States would make a statement like this. How can we achieve prosperity with fairness and equality while minimizing harm to people, other living beings, and the environment? That would be a new paradigm. That statement alone would be a new paradigm and uh, a movement uh, by people to look at these issues. And so students, I try to present these new paradigms to students and let them think about alternatives to uh, the way life is right now because we do need positive visions. We do need positive alternative futures. We live in a non-sustainable system. We only have one Earth. We can't live like we have two or three or ten Earths. Daniel Schwartz, are there other paradigms you have to offer that give people concrete options? Let me relate a personal story very quickly. When I was 15 years old, I lived along one of the old transport canals uh, near the uh, Delaware River, which separates New Jersey and Pennsylvania. That transport canal we used for swimming and boating and fishing and just hanging out. 
It was beautiful. It was a wonderful ecosystem with lightning bugs and so on. That transport canal will always be in my heart. The transport canal, in the name of progress, was transformed into a freeway. It was cemented over with little or no resistance. It was thought of as progress, and people did not act in their own interest, and they traded in the tr- this beautiful, wonderful canal and that whole ecosystem for a noisy, rather odiferous freeway system with constant noise and constant odors and gave it up in the name of an ideology instead of thinking, what's in our interest? And I think that's, that happens often with the notion of progress. We don't look at the larger picture. We become rational or rationalized without looking at reason and history and the kinds of, of things that make life worth living. If somehow we thought that uh, a freeway, uh, the noise and, and the cars would somehow be better for people living in a neighborhood than this wondrous canal. So the canal lo- lo- no longer exists. And I think that kind of thing happens all, all, all in different places and different times. We need to rethink um, notions of progress. Progress for whom? There's a quote of yours I want to ask you about, which is, we have to make peace with the earth by giving ecology the equivalent standing and consideration that economics has in law, the government, and daily life. What has happened is uh, we've so emphasized economics at the expense of ecology that ecology has no real standing in law. Environmental law uh, has to be changed, and the law in general has to be changed. We can't continue to have the primacy of economics over ecology. Uh, It's not in the long run going to work. We have to see that uh, ecology and how we live on Earth is as important, if not more important, than economy. Everything comes from the earth. Everything goes back to the earth. And if we invent some mythology about this, um, we're only deluding ourselves. You know, Rachel Carson said 50 years ago, uh, the war, our war against nature is really a war against ourselves. Daniel, are you ever challenged by students or or others about um, the whole notion of, you know, we can't go back to a pre-industrial society. Um, These are all advances, and this is part of what a modern society is all about. Have you been challenged? Yes. It's a very good question. Uh, No, of course we're not going to go back to being hunters and gatherers. But hunters and gatherers lived in balance with their environment. Right now we have an anthropocentric system that where humans are in the center of things. We need to move, I think, to an ecocentric system where we can learn to live a little more lightly. We can do more recycling. We need to think about uh, consumption. And it's very, very difficult when you have advertising, when you have new technologies constantly being invented. Uh, New technologies tend to be very anti-democratic. No one asks us if we want these things. No one, we don't vote on them. 
it's interesting. We think of, of progress mainly now as technological progress. Uh, so a lot of our technologies, new technologies, are used in war. Uh, wh- why would we want to go in that direction? Why would we want to spend all that money to do these kinds of things that n- don't necessarily, and of course do not, uh, enhance, in my estimation, the human condition whatsoever? I think that's the new paradigm, and we can't go on at business and politics as usual because we're in a new age. Paradigm shifts are very, very difficult because those in power are resisting the paradigm shift. No, the answer to that question is a difficult answer. It's a in process. But Dr. King said, the means are as important as the ends. How you get there is as important as there. So Daniel, if you can imagine, if you had a minute or two to talk to a young person to make your case uh, about how best to balance modern life with a respect for nature, what would you say? Well, that's part of the problem. You can't say it in a minute or two. Uh, that's part of modern life, uh, the compression of time. Uh, a lot of issues take time. Uh, technology changes the nature of time. Speed changes the nature of time. So we don't have time to savor other people some, sometimes. We don't have time to savor nature. Uh, we don't have time to savor food. That's why we have fast foods. Fast. Everything. Why does everything have to be so fast? Uh, saving time for what purpose? Uh, and those are questions I think we need to ask. But it's the nature of a system that uh, commodifies time and commodifies mostly everything. Uh, I have two grandchildren now that are very important to me, and I spend time with them in nature. I spend time talking to them like my father talked to me uh, and showing them. And I think students, I, I uh, want students to go out, and they do go out into the natural world, even if they contemplate at the UNM duck pond, which is a, a reconstruction of nature, but it's still a natural place. And uh, meditate and connect with the trees, with the ducks, with the water. And it certainly happens to all of us when we allow ourselves to go out into isolated areas and feel the power of nature and the relationship with ourselves and understand that we are still connected. When it's, you're right next to it and you begin to look around and understand the, the, this beauty that we're still a part of. And it's our life support system that we, we can't live without air and water and, and good land. We need these things to survive. And it's only hyper-individualism and uh, uh, this idea that we can isolate ourselves and quarantine ourselves from the natural world that gets us into trouble uh, that somehow things outside can go very wrong in the natural world, but we can hide out, and we can't hide out anymore. Um, the world uh, won't allow us to. So it, it, we have to deal with multiple issues, and that would be in, inequality. We have to deal with issues of sustainability. We have to deal with issues of 
individualism and hyper-individualism at the expense of community and society. There are multiple issues, and they're not only intellectual issues, they're issues of the heart. So it's very hard in a short period of time to deal with these issues because the crisis that we face is not just an environmental crisis. It's a crisis of what it means to be human, what makes life worth living, and a crisis of the human spirit. Daniel, you wear a sticker, a beautiful color sticker of the earth over your heart. What significance is that for you? The significance is I, uh, I want to carry the earth in my heart. Uh, I want to be reminded of the importance of Mother Earth and the life-giving forces of this planet that we have uh, adapted to and evolved in And so just like my canal is in my heart, the earth, I want to always be in my heart. And my unique, my background and my my father and my my father was a conservationist and a very gentle, wonderful human being. And he spent time with me telling me about plants and animals. And I've taken in his message and uh, I I wear the sticker simply as a reminder that uh, the earth needs to be in our hearts and not simply uh, in our minds. Daniel Schwartz teaches at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. He holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology and advanced degrees in sociology, social behavior, and medical anthropology. To hear an hour-long version of this program and to read more about our guests, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003, order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a free podcast or a newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program. All at peacetalksradio.com. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, AMP Concerts, Albuquerque's roving concert series at ampconcerts.org, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to Peace Talks Radio.